With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, as part of my series of interviews with the candidates for U.S. Soccer President, I'm joined by Kyle Martino, who's on leave from his job as an analyst for NBC Sports Premier League coverage. Keep in mind that this was recorded on November 19th, before USSF President Sunil Gulati got out of the race and two more candidates entered the campaign. But this discussion is still extremely timely. We talk about Martino's platform, I press him on why he thinks he's qualified to run such a big organization, and we talk about the record of Gulati in his 12 years as U.S. Soccer President. He can, together with Dan Flynn, who's very much a part of that as well, brag about the profit side of the business. Where he can't brag, after missing out on the first World Cup for the men since 1986, is on the soccer side. So why am I qualified? I'm the soccer answer. And U.S. soccer is a business, absolutely. And I'm going to have to spend this entire campaign helping people see why I'm a good business answer and why I can help solve those problems. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is U.S. Soccer presidential candidate Kyle Martino. Kyle is a former MLS Rookie of the Year who also played for the U.S. men's national team. Since having to retire due to injuries, Martino has become an analyst for NBC Sports' terrific coverage of the Premier League. But he is now on leave from that job to run for U.S. Soccer president. Kyle, thanks for joining me. I'm unemployed. <laughs> it's great for to the have first you. time since, since I was 14 years old. <laughs> great to have you here in the uh, Sports Illustrated podcast studio Thanks here for having me. in New York. You You're got some nice digs here. Inside. Thank you. I mean, it took a while to get in, but I, I understand why you got to make sure people <laughs> like me are credible and can get through the door. <laughs> so I want to start with a question that I'm sort of asking all of the official candidates. And as of right now, there are seven. Mm-hmm. There may be more coming, maybe fewer in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you are qualified to be U.S. soccer president? Yeah, I mean, that's the most important question, I think. You know, th- what's happening right now is a concentration a little bit too much on who as opposed to what we need. I, I think you answer the who, the who after we determine what we need moving forward. And what we need is someone with a soccer vision. And we're coming out of an era of a president that I think deserves credit for growing the game in many ways and the 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 area he can most talk about and brag about is on the business side. Uh, Sunil Gulati is a very smart man who took US soccer over in a time where there wasn't a big surplus and they needed to grow the commercial side of the business and grow the the budget and he did that. He did that over his tenure. I believe it doubled in an eight-year time period. So he can, together with Dan Flynn, who's very much a part of that as well, brag about the profit uh, side of the business. Where he can't brag, after missing out on the first World Cup for the men since 1986, is on the soccer side. So why am I qualified? I'm the soccer answer. And U.S. soccer is a business, absolutely. And I'm going to have to spend this entire campaign 
helping people see why I'm a good business answer and why I can help solve those problems. But what's most important is solving the the soccer product of the business, and that that's where we're we're struggling. The progress has has definitely been outpaced by the profit. And I look at a hundred and fifty million dollar surplus, if that's the the number that most are reporting. It's around. Um, I see opportunity cost. I see salary for youth coaches. I see getting the badges to become a coach uh, being subsidized and it not being so expensive. I see a way to subsidize the youth game and get more people involved. So I want to be U.S. soccer president because I never dreamed of this job. I had my dream job, and I'm willing to walk away from it because my dream has always been to see soccer in this country as big and as loved as it is around the world. And I believe that's going to happen. And I and I see the growth. I, I see the bars that are filled with fans. I see so many things to suggest everyone's catching the bug. But what I don't see is progress on the field. And it's because we've been relying on people that are not qualified to make technical decisions from the top that trickles all the way down to the bottom. So I'm someone who comes in with the wisdom to know what needs to be done, the courage to attempt it, but most importantly, humility to know that I'm not the expert. I don't have the panacea, the answers to everything, but what I do have is a network of all of those experts that are willing to get behind me to solve this massive soccer problem. And if given the opportunity February 10th to become president, I'll prove over this campaign that there is no person more qualified to solve the soccer problem than myself, and also no person who can... And the, the duality of needing to be someone who has the business nows to make sure that we don't suffer in that area, but but the soccer nows to really tackle what will make this game grow. I don't think there's anyone in the field who checks those boxes as well as I do. So tell me about your idea for the soccer side of things in terms of would you like to have a general manager for soccer, a soccer czar, mm-hmm. a, a technical committee? And how does this play into, say, how you would want to hire national team coaches, like a process? Yeah, really good question. And why don't we start with that last one? I think that's the least important because people feel we have a U.S. men's national team problem, and we don't. That's a symptom of our problem. We have a youth soccer problem. We have a growing the game problem. And to solve those, you're naive to think it's going to be one person. This is not a person-for-person solution. There is no one person in this country, by the way, who can come in and stand in that role and single-handedly solve what's going on. So how I look at the presidency is as a soccer visionary who empowers the experts to finally make the soccer decisions. So let's look at that coaching area. Jurgen Klinsmann, as a coach, looked great on paper and, by the way, is a great person to hire under certain circumstances. What he did in Germany, he deserves credit for. But what happened in Germany was very specific. And we're seeing in the success after he left, it had a lot to do with having Yugi Love, a, a remarkable mastermind underneath him, that when in tandem, that symbiotic relationship led Germany to one of the most brilliant performances. And then Yugi Love took that ahead to win a World Cup with a great, talented youth. The decision to hire Jürgen was made by one, maybe two people who are not qualified to to hire a coach of a national team. And here's the thing. Let's say I'm one of the most qualified people in this country to hire a, a, a coach of a national team. 
I shouldn't have that responsibility. I shouldn't have that power. So if, if you want to answer that question first, I create what I'd call a captain's council, which is basically the advisory board of the experts in all of these areas. By the way, people I talked to right when Jurgen was hired that said, I've spoken to people that have played for him. I've spoken to people, whether it was the national team or Bayern Munich, who say he's good when put in a certain situation. And that situation is not what you have going on in the U.S. That, that would have never passed me at that point. But again, what I would do is right now, if I was president, I would grab the short list of candidates built by my council. So I would put it to them first. Who do you think moves the needle? Who should take over this job? And, and throw out names like like Peter Vermees, like, like Tab Ramos, like uh, David Wagner. I mean, some, some names on a short list that excite people, Tata Martino. Um, create that short list for me, please, because you guys are the ones capable and qualified of doing that. Now, let me reach out to these people individually with my relationships and my network to just vet it and see if they're even interested. Let's not waste our time like we did with Jurgen at the beginning, chasing him for a while when he wasn't interested. And, and by the way, I've reached out to, to David Wagner's people already, and he's not interested. So we, we, don't, <laughs> waste, yeah, we, don't, we don't waste time there. Um, and at that point, you say, let's drill this down to two or three candidates who want the job who are qualified to do the job, and then put it to a democratic process, then involve the great people that already exist at U.S. soccer to vote on and, and determine who we go after, how much money we spend on this person, and, and what do we expect from them. Because uh, if one person is picking a, a coach, men's, women's, youth, we have a massive, massive problem already. But also, if you look at Southampton, for instance, in England, what they create are departments. And when you have departments, you don't run into the issue of relying so much on one person. So even if we did have that that czar, that, that president who could run everything, you know, what happens if, uh, I hate to be macabre, but a bus hits him and all of a sudden, how do we do this thing moving forward? So that's why you need to create the departments that, that specialize in the technical decisions that aren't being made properly for U.S. soccer right now. How would you like to improve youth development in the U.S., including making the sport more available to minorities mm -hmm. and addressing the pay-to-play model that currently exists? So you're not getting rid of pay-to-play. And listen, every sport in this country is pay-to-play. I don't, I don't care how you spin it. If you use AAU or other sports, you will find that every sport is pay-to-play. Um, but it's about two things. One, don't make that a barrier to entry. We have, take New York City here. If, you know, 50% of kids are more likely to play basketball than, than any other sport. And, and half of that group are, are Latino who are culturally predisposed. If you think about heritage of, you know, what they've watched in their household and what they've been interested in culturally are probably predisposed to playing soccer anyway. But the reason we're losing these huge groups of great athletes is because they're being priced out of the game. It becomes incredibly expensive to get on the track, to get on the track that takes you up the pyramid to one day become a collegiate player, a professional player, and, and hopefully for the very small group, a national team player. So first and foremost, we have to use some of our surplus to subsidize the game at a youth level. But listen, if you look at what Germany did when they had that failure in the Euros and they completely redid the system and had a focus on the youth level, and you, you can map you can map their success, especially geared towards players like Mesut Ozil and Götze and 
This German team that you and I both know were very pragmatic and risk averse for so long and succeeded that way, moved in a different direction, but it was centralized. It was the DFB, their version of U.S. soccer and the Bundesliga putting mandates on Division One, Division Two must have academies, right? You have to contribute in training our kids the right way. But it's bigger than that, right? You have to subsidize the training at the youth level to ensure more kids get into the system. We're fishing with a pole and we need a net. And that's not that doesn't solve the problem. That's just one piece. The other side of it is I'm a kid that came from pay to play, right? And I'm, I'm the perfect example of the rich kid who made it all the way up. And if my parents gave me the bill for my soccer education, I wouldn't be able to afford it. I mean, I, I, I did everything. I'm, I'm kind of, I perfectly encapsulate the spectrum of I played rec, I played travel, I played club, I played high school, I played ODP, I made it to the regional team, I made it to the national team, I went to voluntary, so I was in residency, I went to college, I played pro, and I'm on the backside of that for the first time, actually in my life, because my parents paid for it before, I'm paying to play soccer. I pay to, to be in an amateur league. I did it in, here with Metro uh um, NY right down the road mm-hmm. at Pier 40. I've nice. got my bumps and bruises still to prove that. <laughs> and um, and now I have a kid that I'm paying to put into the system. So I've seen the entire spectrum and we have to make it more affordable. We can't be losing so many athletes to other sports. And it starts at the beginning, but we still have great participation. It's just we get a lot of kids dropping off at seven, at 10, at 15. So that's one area. The other area is for the people more than happy, like my parents, to pay Five to ten thousand dollars a year to get your kid in the system and travel them up and down the coast to play in tournaments. The soccer education isn't good enough, so we have to help these clubs train their coaches. We have to help hire new coaches, and one way you do that is by making the process to get certification, the badges, more affordable. I mean, we're pricing coaches out as well, so that's one area U.S. Soccer can help out with their strategic partners, Major League Soccer. Uh, NASL, USL, all these leagues that want to have academies but can't afford to to really take on that expense, get strategic with helping them do that. Uh, you know, Johnson and Johnson and Coca Cola and Nike, everyone needs to pony up to help solve this problem. But you have to make sure the education that parents are paying for is good enough, that's worth the money they're paying for, and that kids aren't being priced out of being able to get that education. And I just think that we have the means. And the network and the resources to improve coaching at all levels and open the net so we catch more kids. And that has to be the focus. If we think this is a top of the period, the period um, pyramid U.S. men's national team problem, we are sorely mistaken and destined to repeat this failure. But what bothers me about that as well, Grant, is we're not talking about the women because we, we look at the U.S. women's national team as the beacon of success. And like our prophet, we point to the women's team as, look, it's working. Ask any current players or foreign players, and I know you've asked some of them, they feel that we are headed in the wrong direction because of Title IX and focus on women's sports in this country for a long time, which was incredibly important. We are the Germany. We are the Spain. We are the Argentina of the women's game. But the other countries have caught up and are surpassing our women because they are continuing to invest in the development of their youth to create a pipeline up to the national team. And we're not doing that on the women's side. And forget the fact that we're not paying them an equal salary. I'm sure you'll get into that. But we're just not treating that game and those athletes like world-class World Cup winners. When I was little, I wanted to be Diego Maradona. I wanted to be Mia Hamm. Question for you, because you brought up the women's side, and I have two questions for you about that. One is actually about women in leadership positions in U.S. soccer. Mm -hmm. 
None of the current candidates for U.S. soccer president are women. A very small percentage of the voters mm-hmm. for in this election are women. Or the board. Or the four out of 15 on mm-hmm. the board. And a lot of the the big names, great leaders from this rich history of the U.S. women's national team have chosen not to be involved in the leadership of U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer. Now, they have reasons that may include having nice jobs like Julie Foudy at Mm -hmm. ESPN. But I think it's also a situation where she and other people have felt a little bit shut out. Yeah, marginalized of of U.S. soccer. What would you do to increase the leadership of women in U.S. soccer? Well, first and foremost, um, I would make sure that our athletes are paid the same on on the women's side as they're paid on the men's side. I mean that that's the the easiest place to start because um, it's fair and it's what should happen. And by the way, um, wage inequality is not a sports problem; it, it's a cultural problem. And we should be the leading force. We should be the group saying we stand for equal pay for for our women athletes. And we want to be the, the front runners. We want to be the mavericks that say this is how society should look in every industry at the people contributing just as much or even more in certain ways to the growth of the product. And women absolutely are doing that on our side. And you, and you mentioned Julie. Um, th- this is public because on Twitter I said, please run. I wanted Julie Fatty to run for U.S. soccer president because I think she is incredibly capable and I would I would follow her if she ran for U.S. soccer president, but she can't. And, and you said because she's got a great job. And I know you don't mean that in, in a negative way, a pejorative way towards Julie. I've got a great job, a dream job. I'm willing to leave. And I'm fortunate that I can take that risk without putting a lot of pressure on my family. And at this point, I don't speak for Julie. I speak for others. People can't do that. People can't take the risk of getting into this game because they've either been marginalized and don't believe they're going to be given the support they need, or they don't have the financial means. I mean, you really have to be independently wealthy. How many you know soccer guru visionaries do we know that are independently wealthy in this country? Not a lot. So the pool shrinks of quality candidates in that category. I should also be clear in saying this is an unpaid job, the U.S. soccer yeah. presidency. Yeah. And so- you know, what I would do right away is f- something I've mentioned. It has to be a paid position. And not because I need to be paid, because we should pay the U.S. soccer president. The first part of my campaign, the three pillars, is about transparency. We need to know how much money the U.S. president makes, and and, and we pay their salary. They work for, for the soccer community. They work for soccer in America and create that accountability by making it a paid position, but also increase the quality of candidates by creating a salary commensurate with the high quality of executives running other industries that could come and do something for this soccer culture. But to answer where we started about women in the game is I would I would create a 50-50 ratio of having, not because of gender, but because of, of qualifications, women who can help move this needle, help solve this big soccer problem. So I'm having a, um, a summit in New York City. Um, it's December 4th through 6th, and I've talked about it. I, I've, I've mentioned it on my GoFundMe page to give fans an opportunity to invest in this progress plan. I'm going to create a business plan to solve U.S. soccer problems, and that room is going to be filled with women because I won't pretend to be the expert on what is needed at the youth level on the women's side, what's needed at the national team level, what's needed for their professional league. 
I, I can easily find the expert and bring them into the room and empower them to be able to make that decision on, on every area, the amateur side, referees, uh, the youth level for, for men, the, 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 the Paralympic level, uh, the beach soccer level, the futsal level. I mean, I can find and have gathered this group to be able to solve these problems. And first, we have to make sure that the wonderful minds in the soccer world on the women's side are, are valued, are included, and immediately are hired to be a part of the U.S. soccer structure from the board level down to the councils, down to uh, staff in the in the uh, soccer house in Chicago. So that, that will definitely be one of my first initiatives to, um, to make sure the qualified people that are locked out for whatever reason from making good soccer decisions are included moving forward. You mentioned earlier this current surplus that U.S. soccer has. It's anywhere from $130 million to $150 million, mm-hmm. mostly due to Copa America Centenario being so wildly profitable for U.S. soccer. Some of that money has to be kept in reserves, mm-hmm. but not all of it. <laughs> A lot of it can be spent. What do you think it should be spent on? So I see the surplus and I look... I look at a business plan that's that's going well, right? That goes to the side of the first thing people will look at when a 36-year-old soccer player, if you're going to put me in a stereotype, comes in to try to run a $150 million company. Where's the business acumen? And my answer there is I, I am uh, much more a businessman than some of these businessmen or soccer guys. So I, I can prove and will throughout this campaign that whether through being on the ownership board of Mallorca, a team I've, an ownership group I've bought into recently, or going back and coaching at the youth level with my high school team and the club team I came out of, working in finance, which is the first thing I did, don't hold that against me, in the, uh, in the years right after I retired, I did not call, cause the financial crisis, I promise. Um, I've been in the business space in many ways, and most importantly, on the TV side. I mean, that's the area that we need to grow the most, is media. I've worked for every major network, uh, ESPN, sure. Fox, NBC have great relationships with all of them. John Skipper is uh, someone I'm reaching out to to meet with. I've already met with Mark Lazarus and the NBC crew who who gave me their support by letting me get out of a long-term contract for a very successful soccer team that they've built. Uh, Fox, I've, I've got my relationships to go all the way up there and create a strategic idea of mapping out how we grow the TV side of the business. I mean, that's the big piece that that raises that increases revenue. But I, I look at the fact that the, the surplus to me is opportunity cost. Do you know what I see in $150 million? I see coaches that aren't being paid. I see uh, a youth game that's not being subsidized. I see fields that are not being built. I see... Um, academies that aren't being created. We looked at IMG. By the way, I went through the residency program before it became the U.S. soccer residency program. And I promise you, I got so much better while I was there. And there's a reason that the German Federation, the DFB, made that one of their focuses to create centers of excellence all across the country. Granted, they threw a couple billion dollars at it, and we're not (laughs) going to be able to do that. But just because we can't make it free for everyone and solve the problem doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking some of that surplus and putting our money where our mouth is and investing in initiatives. I've been on the phone with youth um, state associations. I've been on the phone with amateur associations. And the biggest issue, the, the, the overhead that's crippling a lot of them, it's fields. It's mm. access to fields. So it's causing a problem in the inner city where kids aren't being able to play. Uh, they can't find fields. They're booked all day long. 
Uh, it's happening in the suburbs as well. Don't think this is just an inner city problem. So we should be taking that surplus and not in a fiscally irresponsible way. We should be earmarking money that's not being used currently to solve problems that, of course, we're not going to buy our way out of, but doesn't mean we shouldn't be earmarking money to, to address these issues and then asking our strategic partners to pony up as well. And then I think, first and foremost, getting together with Kev, uh, with um, Dan Flynn, who hopefully will stay on, who's been a big part of building that surplus and running the budget in day-to-day for U.S. soccer. And until I see the budget, and I can look at the budget from last year's AGM and read the 50 pages, and I have, but I really need to get a sense of, are we spending efficiently? What's earmarked for 2017, 2018? Are we doing the right things? Is there waste? Where, where can we gain money back before we even talk about spending more? So I, I've got a lot of ideas on where we need to spend. And after I get together with the, the summit and, and the people I'm going to put in that room, we're going to write out and map out exactly what we plan to do with some of that surplus and finally put substantive ideas on paper. We're winding down here. Appreciate you taking uh, the time. You knew I was going to answer questions <laughs> 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> One hot button topic in the campaign is promotion and relegation in U.S. soccer. Mm-hmm. There is no promotion and relegation currently. Uh, there is at sort of amateur levels and, and other levels, not in our yeah, not location. in our top division. Um, right. Where, what's your stance on that? And would you like to see it? Would you like to see it soon? Later on? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it? So I see it every weekend. On the Premier League, I, I, I'm covering a a league and have been a part of a very successful product that has an open system, and it's the way it's done around the world. But we can't be naive and think we are like the rest of the world. We have a unique challenge knocking out incumbents. By the way, that we're not going to knock out. I mean, there there's there are leagues that have 20 million people watching a night, so we are a bit of a little fish in a big pond. Um, There are cultural challenges to opening the system right now. But where I stand on it is I'm for any idea that grows this game. So I will not rule out when I get into office looking at anything that grows two things, the quality and the competition. So the, the, the idea is to look at every possibility, every way that you can improve those two things. Starting at the youth level, for sure, where promotion relegation isn't. You know, I, and, I, and I sort of tongue-in-cheek say it exists. It exists, you know, that you can fail out of the academy. You can be relegated out of the, the development academy. You can be relegated out of being a part of teams. You can relegate uh, being relegated out of amateur leagues. I, I, I saw teams being relegated out of the, uh, the Pier 40 League here. If they didn't perform well enough, drop down, and they didn't like that. I was paid in, in, in beers afterwards, so, it, you know, your salary didn't really take a hit. But um, we need to, if that's the answer... Create a roadmap there instead of a cliff. Switching it on right now can't work. It would not work. And and I don't want to see a, a good debate debunked based on too much emotion and, and too much screaming about a subject that is nuanced and complicated and needs to be looked at. And I think if you talk with owners from all levels, if you talk with Major League Soccer, I think what you'll find is that you have to respect that without the model the way it was, we were probably destined to fail like the NASL did. I mean, that, that, that spectacular collapse that was magical, that was beautiful, that, that gathered some of the best players around the world and excited people that had never watched the game. 
But without the stability of, of the model they created and, and, and partnering it with other things so that rights became more attractive by being a part of the first division and convincing, by the way, owners to lose millions and, and still lose millions of dollars. Some of these owners are losing $40, 50000000 million a year. It's hard to convince all of that growth and that stability without the way things have been done. The big question is, does, does that have to be the way it's done moving forward? And that's what we need to answer as candidates. What's the roadmap to opening the system? Because one of the things in my game, in my in my um, platform, if you look at my website, it doesn't have my name on it. It says everyone's game. It's disingenuous to call it everyone's game if you're not trying to find a way to get everyone involved. So uh, the answer to that is there is no idea off the table in terms of growing the sport in this country. We talked about earlier U.S. soccer president is an unpaid position. Campaigning around the country costs money. Um, Coming to see you in New York costs money. Exactly. I see that you've raised as of today more than $18,000 on a GoFundMe campaign. Mm -hmm. What is that money going toward? Good question. So going back to the pillars of my platform, transparency, a few things. One, we've talked about making it a paid position and how that creates accountability. Uh, The next is... I'm going to sell out of my ownership uh, and be bought out of Mallorca if I get this job. I don't want any conflict of interest when I come into this position. I have um, ownership in a couple of youth development company ideas, and I, and I will get out of all of those entanglements and become a employee of U.S. soccer to grow the game. To do this, um, obviously, there's a move to try and make it a paid position, which, by the way, if Sunil Gulati stays on as president, he should be paid. It's not about getting money. I obviously can make money in, in many different ways being a part of this game, but I want to work 24-7 on growing the game in the States. And I think the U.S. soccer president needs to be the face and voice as well as as the, the heart and mind of U.S. soccer. You need to get out and sell this game. It's, it's, I think, a bit obtuse to think this is just about getting a national team back into a World Cup. No, this is about growing a game in a very crowded sports landscape. So you need someone that does what I do for a living, gets on TV, does interviews, gets on podcasts, and, and has a compelling argument for why your kid, which, by the way, many of these parents, if you look at you know CTE uh, studies, and this is nothing new. This is nothing I'm saying. These reports are out there. Some parents are worried about their kid being involved in certain sports and are looking for another ball to put at their kids' hands or at their feet. You have to make a compelling argument for why that should be a soccer ball. So this is a massive undertaking. And what I've done is I've asked the fans to be a part of this. One thing that frustrates me so much, the people who who I watched the Trinidad and Tobago game with, the American Outlaws, the chapter here, the Manhattan chapter, um, and what they've done to grow the fan base and, and sort of unite the clans, so to speak, is to create these amazing tribal communities that exist all across the world and link them together so they can be one powerful voice and continue to grow it. But they don't have a voice in this election. They have a voice from the sideline, but they don't have a true vote. They can't move the needle in this election, and that's wrong. So I want to give them a vested interest in our progress plan, and that's what the GoFundMe page is, and it has a description of all of their donations – and I'm so grateful for the or close to 18, 19,000 that's come in already. That money is going to be used to get all of these soccer people I'm talking about to New York City so we can sit in a room. I'm going to fly them all in, get them to New York City, rent the space so we can come up with this business plan, the progress plan I'm calling it, and give it to the soccer community. We won't own it. It belongs to everyone. And, and fans need to feel that they have 
a president that's accountable to them. I mean, that's a lot of money some of these people are putting forward for me. By the way, on top of the flight that they took to Trinidad and Tobago, the jerseys that they've been buying, the season tickets that they have, supporting this team is not cheap and supporting the game in this country is not cheap. And I want them to be able to put money towards someone who is going to ensure they're not going to have to sit on the couch for another summer and watch a World Cup without their men's team in it. And I'm going to make sure that they watch a World Cup with their women's team being supported to continue the success that we've been able to enjoy. The next part of it is a private funding that I've been doing outside of the GoFundMe, which is a way to um, include people here in Manhattan who are either high net worth or individuals who can contribute to the same idea of this is not quid pro quo. We believe in you. We believe in changing this game. I'm not going to get your NASL team into Major League Soccer. I'm not going to get your uh, kid uh, on the club team, your club team in the academy. I'm not going to get your kid in University of Virginia. But I promise you I'm going to be the person to finally give this game back to the people who've been serving it so well and finally put voices in place that can make the change that we need to on the soccer side. And so the funding on the private side is so now that I don't have a salary, I don't have to take out another mortgage and I don't have to put a financial strain on my family um, to, to get in and make a difference. So I was willing to take on that risk and I, and I left my job without a penny donated to me. My salary's been shut off, so this is all coming out of my pocket right now. And a couple people in the finance world where I worked said, let us, let us help mitigate that risk that you're taking because we believe in you and we believe in this game. One final thing here. I wanted to ask you if you had a, a last thing to say in this interview to the voters and, and U.S. soccer fans, what would it be? Tell me what's keeping you up at night. I, I, I Again, we need to get past the era of, of, of one person making soccer decisions. I will not be the person that, that sits, on, sits on a throne and makes soccer decisions for this country. I will be the person to listen. And some of that funding is going to go to putting me on a plane so I can fly around the country and speak to the parents in, in Los Angeles who can't afford to get their kid in the system, to, to speak to the Paralympian who at 22 has to retire because it's not paid after that. In their peak performing years, they've got to go find another job. I've got to speak to the uh, youth coaches and, and administrators who are handicapped with running organizations and a need to get fees and a need to to create bigger uh, paths to registration, but are coming up against all these impediments. I, I need to make sure that when I speak, I'm speaking their language. They hear their voice and their concerns through me. I have to be that conduit. So what I need to do first and foremost, and I've been doing it on the phone, I was doing it from Mexico and my wife was giving me a bad look every time because I promised her we'd take a family trip before I got on a plane and disappeared. But of course, like my dad did when he worked for IBM, I was sitting on the phone from, from 7 a.m., uh, even 5 a.m. Uh, to, to 10 a.m. and then checking out and being with the family. And my dad once told me, and this is where I'll finish, um, my dad had a very successful career and we came from a blue collar background and my dad was the one to transition our family into a more uh, affluent um, part of, of Connecticut. It was hard work. It was, you know, Rhode Island, Italian Americans. And my dad worked so hard for so long and climbed the ladder and wanted to give opportunities to, to his kids, but said this, you have to understand what hard work is, but let me just tell you who leaders are. One of the CEOs at IBM, and I won't use a name, but he said, the person I respected the most was the person 
who hired smarter people than them around them. The person who empowered smarter people to help make decisions and didn't try to be the expert in every single field. And I think that's the president we need right now. That's the president I will be. I'm no expert in, in, in every category. I have core competencies, but most importantly, I'm an expert at seeing humility is needed right now. There's no panacea, and I am, I am no prophet who's coming back to save this thing. I'm someone that loves it dearly. I'm someone that believes in the game in this country. And as your president, you will hear your voice through mine. You will hear your concerns through my my platform during this campaign and hopefully you will see me addressing your concerns when I'm given the authority to to help fix this soccer problem after February 10th. Kyle Martino, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Kyle Martino as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon with a free seven-day trial now. Recent guests include Patrick Vieira, Juan Carlos Osorio, Howard Webb, Arlo White, and Gwendolyn Oxenham. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.